We are back in Samuel this morning after a few weeks uh, in other parts of the scripture. Uh, the main character in this part of the story of Samuel, really chapters 4 through 7, it's kind of a unit. The main character in this part of the story of Samuel has been the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark, of course, was a gold-covered box that served as God's throne, the vehicle of God's presence among his people. Normally, it would have been kept in the most holy place in the tabernacle. Now, remember what's happened here. In 1 Samuel 4, the Israelites went out to do battle with the Philistines. They went to cast off Philistine oppression, and they lost. And so they thought, well, we'll try this again, but this time let's take the Ark of the Covenant onto the field of battle with us, surely bringing Yahweh himself into our war camp will give us the victory. Surely if Yahweh is with us on the field of battle through his Ark, that will give us victory. But Yahweh allowed his ark to be captured in the battle of Aphek. Why did he do this? Why was the ark captured by the Philistines? Well, partly it was to punish his people. Partly it was to take the punishment of exile that his people deserved. And partly it was so he could defeat the Philistines on his own terms. See, the Philistines, in capturing the ark, of course, thought they had won a great victory. And so they took the ark of the covenant and they put it in the temple of their god, Dagon, as if to say, Dagon is mightier than Yahweh. But Yahweh can take care of himself. And so Yahweh actually toppled Dagon's statue and broke Dagon, shattered him into pieces. And not only that, but Yahweh plagued the Philistine city of Ekron, where the temple of Dagon was... And so for the next seven months, the Philistines passed the ark around from one of their big cities to another, always with the same result. The people kept getting plagued. And so finally they say, hey, you know what? Maybe it's not safe for us to have the ark of the covenant in our presence. They decided they needed to send it back to Israel. And they did so. And they sent it back with plunder in the form of gold images of rats. Uh, because apparently the rats were involved in the plague that God had put upon them. So they send the ark back to Israel with plunder. It's like another exodus, just like when the Israelites came out of Egypt with plunder. So it is as the ark comes back to Israel. But when the ark arrives back in the promised land, back in Israelite territory at the end of chapter 6, things do not go the way you might have expected. The ark does not go back to Shiloh. The sanctuary in Shiloh is no more. The evil priests in Eli's family defiled that sanctuary with their idolatry and their adultery, and so it was destroyed. The ark comes to the town of Beth Shemesh. And at first, the ark stops in the field of a man named Joshua. Now, this is obviously not the Joshua who led Israel in the conquest of the promised land. He's long since dead. But since this is his namesake, maybe we should look for a connection. When the Bible includes details like this, when it gives us the name of a man, for example, obviously he's a very minor character in the story, there's got to be a reason for it. The Holy Spirit doesn't waste his breath. There's a reason for this in the text. We are told in chapter 6, verse 14, that the ark stopped by a stone. This is another one of those little details. And this stone is actually mentioned in verses 14, 15, and 18. It gets three mentions here, so it must be important. We are told, in fact, that the stone stands as a witness down to the day when this account is written. 
the stone is a witness to what the Lord has accomplished. It is a memorial stone. Now, think about this. You've got Joshua here, a character named Joshua. You've got a memorial stone. If you go back to the book of Joshua, you find that Joshua set up stone memorials. So, for example, he set up stone memorials in the Jordan River to commemorate when the people carried the ark across the river on dry ground. And so here... You have the ark, here as there, you have the ark associated with memorial stones. You have a Joshua, you have memorial stones, you have the ark. It's the same kind of thing. In fact, we see that this stone becomes like an altar where they offer sacrifice. Now, all of that sounds good. It sounds like they're doing the right thing. But there are a few problems here. First, and if you don't know the book of Leviticus well, uh, you wouldn't catch this. But we're told in verse 14 that the cows that carried the ark back, they sacrificed those cows. But here's the problem with that. Actually, according to Leviticus, bulls are prescribed for this kind of sacrifice. It must be the male animal, not the female. So that's a mistake that they make here. They're careless. They're sloppy in the way they worship God. Further, in verse 19, uh, they must have looked into the ark or fail to keep the ark covered as was required. Whatever the case, they do something forbidden with the ark. And so the Lord strikes down many of the men of Beshemesh. There's a textual variant there, so it's hard to know exactly how many men. But many of the men of Beshemesh are struck dead. And so really we find that the Israelites are getting the same treatment as the Philistines. Just as God brought judgment against the Philistines when they had his ark, so the men of Beshemesh are judged as well. They still don't understand the Lord's holiness. These Israelites have had a long time to learn the lesson, but they still do not understand the Lord's holiness. They will not do things the Lord's way according to his word. And so once again, it's kind of like the ark is a hot potato, just as the Philistines wanted to pass it around because it was too hot to handle. So here, the men of Beshemesh want to send the ark away. In verse 20, they ask, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? That sounds a lot like the question that David asks in Psalm 24. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? God's holiness makes him dangerous to sinners. It is dangerous for sinners to be in the presence of a holy God. It is dangerous for sinners to draw near and approach a holy God. But here's the thing. Rather than repent and go on and do what Psalm 24 says to do, or Psalm 15 is another one, rather than repent and seek God's forgiveness and seek to be obedient, what do they do? They send the ark away. Rather than saying, we need to change ourselves and how we live, they say, let's change the location of the ark. Let's send it away. And so the ark gets a new home. The ark is sent to Kiriath-Jearim, to the house of Abinadadab on the hill, and his son Eleazar, who is ordained or consecrated, you could say, as caretaker of the ark, and there the ark will stay until David brings it to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel. And then, of course, ultimately Solomon, when he builds the temple, will put it in the most holy place of the temple. Now, what is significant about this? Why Kiriath-Jearim? It's interesting. Kiriath-Jearim was one of the cities of the Gibeonites. And if you go back to the book of Joshua, you find that the Gibeonites are Gentiles dwelling in the land 
that the Israelites are to conquer, but they actually trick Joshua in Joshua chapter 9 into making a covenant with them so they will be spared. So they will not be exterminated along with the rest of the Canaanites. Uh, so these were clever people, uh, and in various ways they got incorporated into the nation of Israel. But what's interesting about this is that it suggests that the Israelites entrusted the caretaking of the ark to a consecrated Gentile. Later, when the ark is taken to Jerusalem, it will again be entrusted to a Gentile, Obed-Edom, who is a Gittite. It's very interesting. Why do we have these Gentiles mentioned here in an association with the Ark of the Covenant? The inclusion of the Gentiles in the holy space that surrounds the Ark here is prophetic. Of course, it points ahead to what God will do in the future to the inclusion of the Gentiles in the new covenant. This is prophetic of the new covenant when the covenant will be opened up to all nations, to all peoples. You've got a preview of that here. When, the, when Gentile believers become part of the same royal priesthood as Jewish believers, what's being prophesied here will be fulfilled. But we already see there's a sense in which Gentiles can serve as priests. Gentiles can be made part of the royal priesthood. So you've got a Gentile caretaker for the ark for now. Meanwhile, what do the Israelites do? Well, chapter 7 verse 2 tells us they lamented after the Lord. They lamented after the Lord. Here's the situation. They have the ark back. The new exodus has been accomplished, but they are still under Philistine oppression. They still need to reconquer the land. They still need to to, to have another conquest of the land. Their cities are in ruins. Their army has been decimated. Their wealth is being confiscated. They're clearly still under the negative judgment of God. The ark has accomplished the new exodus, but now it's kind of like they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and they need a new conquest. They need to throw off Philistine oppression, but they're just not ready to do that. They're lamenting before the Lord. In fact, here we're told they lamented for 20 years after the ark came back. The Philistine oppression was painful for them. Uh, And in fact, Philistine oppression had even started 20 years before this. It's actually going to run 40 years total. We know that from Judges chapter 13. So they're still under the yoke of the Philistines. Verse 3 indicates that during all this time, Samuel was preaching. He was going around Israel, uh, preaching a message to them, uh, to all the Israelites, calling on them to return to the Lord with all their hearts to put away their foreign gods, the Baals and the Ashtaroths that they were worshiping. And Samuel tells them if they will worship and serve the Lord only, as Moses required of them, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. If they will serve the Lord only, he will deliver them from the Philistines. It's the same pattern you see play out again and again in the book of Judges. If they will cry out to the Lord in repentance, he will deliver them. And verse 4 tells us that at the end of those 20 years of mourning, those 20 years of lamenting, they finally did it. They broke away from worshiping the Baals and the Ashtaroths to serve the Lord alone. That is to say, they repented. They repented of their idolatry. And that means the time for their deliverance has come. Samuel has been preaching all these years, calling on the nation to repent. And finally, they have decided to listen. 
But we need to take a little bit of a closer look at their repentance here because I think we can learn from it. This passage really shows us what repentance is all about and why repentance leads to deliverance. In fact, what we see here is there are really three ingredients in their deliverance. Three key ingredients that go into the mix, the, the victory mix, you could say, that will lead to their deliverance. The first of those ingredients here is repentance. Now, what we see here is that there are inward and outward components to repentance. Inwardly, there has to be a change of heart. Okay? They have to turn in their hearts towards the Lord. There has to be a heart turning back to God. And then outwardly, that has to be manifested in a change of action, in a change of behavior. Obedience has to manifest itself as the fruit of their repentance. Their change of heart leads to a change in action. A change in heart leads to a change in their way of life. That's what repentance is. Repentance is putting away sin in order to pursue righteousness. It's destroying idols. It's smashing idols in order to serve the living God. When it comes to repentance, the outward change is evidence of the inward change. You can't just say, I repent. You have to show repentance by how you live. You have to demonstrate it in a changed way of life. And you see that here. Verse 3, Samuel says, turn to the Lord in your heart. Verse 4, that manifests itself in action when they put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Here's another way to describe repentance, another way of getting at the same thing. It's a turning from and a turning to. You know, we think of repentance as, as doing a 180. It's a turning from and a turning to. Turning from idols and sin and turning to the Lord and obedience. And that is what Israel does here. This is genuine repentance. Now, let's go one step further with this. What are these gods they're turning away from? What are these idols they're putting to death? Well, uh, it's, the Baal, it's the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Those, the, those are the names identified here. Uh, we know that Baal was the god of nature, the god of the weather, the god uh, especially of thunder and lightning, the god of the thunderstorm. But really, which, how you can think about this is Baal, what, what is at the heart of Baal worship? What are they after in worshiping Baal, the god of nature, the god of the storm? They're really after a good harvest. He's the god of the harvest. And so really what they're after is money, you could say, or security. That's what worshiping Baal was all about. It's making money. It's having security. <clears throat> Ashtaroth was the goddess of sexual freedom and pleasure, the goddess of hedonism. And so, of course, these gods are still very much with us today. People still worship money, and they still worship sex. People still chase after security, and they chase after sexual pleasure. That's what the Israelites were doing in worshiping these gods. Maybe the, the names of the gods have changed. Maybe the, these idols manifest themselves somewhat differently in our culture, but it's really the same thing. We've got lots of people in the culture, and even in the church, who serve the Baals and the Ashtaroths. We still need to repent of that kind of idolatry in our own day. See, repentance means breaking free from the grip of the idol. It means breaking out of sinful ruts, breaking free of sinful patterns that mar and disfigure our lives that lead us to judgment. Samuel calls on Israel to forsake their gods, to turn in their hearts back to the Lord, and they finally do so. That's the first ingredient in this victory mix, the first ingredient in their deliverance, repentance. 
We also see, once they have begun to repent, Samuel calls on all Israel to gather to Mizpah for what you could basically call a prayer meeting, a time of prayer. This is really the second ingredient, prayer. And what do they do here? They, they pour out water. They pour out water before the Lord, a sign of their humility. It's, it's like a drink offering before the Lord. In Lamentations chapter 2, the prophet calls on the people to pour out their hearts like water as a sign of contrition and brokenness. And that's what the people are doing here. Samuel calls them to a prayer meeting, and they're going to pour themselves out like water in prayer before the Lord. And not only that, but they fast. They empty themselves of food because they want to hunger for God alone. And so they forego food. Fasting, of course, is often uh, done in combination with prayer in Scripture. Fasting and prayer go together. So you've got this prayer meeting, and it includes a fast. And in this prayer, they also confess their sin. They have a prayer of confession. And when they confess their sin, I want you to note this, they don't make excuses, they don't rationalize, they don't blame shift. They simply say, we have sinned. We have sinned against the Lord. This is no halfway confession. This, this is no you know, evasive mistakes were made kind of statement. They're saying, we've sinned. We own it. We take responsibility for our, our, our idolatry, our sin before the Lord, our sin against the Lord. And because of all of this, Samuel, the judge, passes judgment in their favor. They condemn themselves as sinners, but Samuel justifies them. Because they're willing to condemn themselves and saying we have sinned against the Lord, Samuel, the judge, passes a verdict in their favor. He says to them, you are justified. What you see here is that Samuel is really their chief intercessor. He's praying for them, but of course they're joining in with him in prayer. So that's the second ingredient in their deliverance. You've got repentance, and then there's also prayer, and obviously those are closely connected. You're never going to have one without the other. Now before we get to the third ingredient, I want you to look at something else that happens here. The Philistines probably have their spies, they've got their CIA, they've got their intelligence agency, and they catch wind of what's happening with the Israelites. And, and they decide, you know what? We better strike now and see if we can just finish Israel off. Now's the time to strike. They see Israel gathered at Mizpah with Samuel. They see Israel weeping. They see Israel fasting. They see weakness. And so they say, now is the time to attack. You see that in verse 7. The lords of the Philistines go up against Israel at Mizpah. They see Israel as easy prey at this moment. Hey, they're fasting. Let's attack. Hey, they're weeping. They're showing signs of weakness. This is the perfect time for us to attack them. And the Israelites are afraid. It's interesting how the roles have been reversed. Earlier it was the Philistines who were afraid, and they ended up winning the battle. And Israel had been very overconfident back in chapter 4. Now Israel, the Israelites, recognize their vulnerability. They recognize their weakness. They recognize their complete and utter dependence upon the Lord. And so as the Philistines start to encroach upon them, as the Philistine army, the Philistine invaders are attacking, in verse 8 they say to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord God that he may save us. Keep praying for us. That's our only hope, is that you would intercede and that the Lord would answer. That's where our trust is. And that really brings us to the third ingredient in their deliverance, 
which is worship. Verse 9, what does Samuel do? He takes a young lamb and he sacrifices it. He takes a young lamb and sacrifices it to the Lord on behalf of the people. Think about this. War is breaking out. War is, is going on all around. And what does Samuel, their leader, do? Samuel offers worship. Samuel moves from his prayer meeting into a worship service. It seems crazy. Israel's being surrounded by Philistine invaders. And Samuel uses his sword not to cut up Philistines, but to cut up a lamb, a sacrifice. He doesn't use his sword against the Philistines. He uses his sword to sacrifice a lamb. Now think about this. If, if America got invaded tomorrow, how many people would think the first thing we need to do is stop and hold a worship service? The first thing we need to do is offer sacrificial worship to the Lord. We wouldn't do that with an animal, of course, but that's what this service is. It's a service of sacrifice. We're offering the sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. The sacrifices of confession. How many people would think, oh, that's the first thing we need to do? I think there are many people, even without America being invaded, there are many people who look at our culture and all that's going on, and you know, it's been called trash world or clown world, the, the, the way our culture is just falling apart, the way it's crumbling. And you look at that and you think, it's like our culture's been set on fire, and it might seem useless to focus our attention on worship when the culture is burning to the ground. The culture is going to hell in a handbasket, and we're busy singing hymns and learning psalms and listening to sermons. How can that be the right thing to do when the country's falling apart in this way? But actually, this is exactly what God wanted the Israelites to do, and Samuel knew it. Samuel knew that worship is not an escape from warfare. Rather, worship is warfare. And that's what we need to understand as well. Samuel was not fleeing from the field of battle by worshiping. He was engaging it and engaging it in the deepest possible way. Samuel slaughters a lamb as if to say, this is really what the sacrifice of a lamb means, as if to say, we deserve death because of our sin just like this lamb, but we can be made right with you, God, by the blood of an innocent sacrifice, a spotless lamb slaughtered on our behalf, offered on our behalf. That's how we can be made right with you. And we know if we're made right with you that you will fight for us and give us the victory. The lamb was slain so we can live. The sinless substitute was sacrificed for sinners. That's the pathway to victory. It's beholding the lamb of God and worshiping him as the one who has come to save us from our sins. That lamb that Samuel sacrificed, of course, that points us ahead to Jesus. God forgives our sins, God accepts us, God restores us, God favors us because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's what happens here. God favors his people because they've offered sacrifice. And so on the basis of that sacrifice, what happens? Well, verse 10, as he is offering the lamb, the Philistines draw near to attack. But the Lord thunders with a mighty sound and throws the Philistines into confusion and they are defeated. God thunders against the Philistines out of his glory cloud. And he sends the Philistine army into chaos. And they are easily beaten by the Israelites. It's so ironic. Remember, Baal is the thunder god? Well, here God, Yahweh, 
shows he is the true God of thunder. He is the true thunder God who thunders against his enemies. He is the Lord of the storm, and he uses his thunder to smash the Philistines to pieces. And of course, once again, as is so often the case in this book, it all goes back to Hannah's sung prayer in chapter 2. It's really just an outline. Every single thing that happens in this book really traces back to Hannah's sung prayer in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 10, Hannah prayed this prayer. She sang this prayer. The adversaries of the Lord, so adversaries like the Philistines, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord's thunderous voice defeats the Philistines. You can read about that thunderous voice in Psalm 18. This is the Lord thundering out of his glory cloud against his enemies. And the Israelites who had been so filled with fear, who had been afraid, are now filled with courage and with strength. And so they pursue the Philistines from Mizpah to beth Car and strike them down. The Israelites win a great victory over the Philistines. They won a great victory that day, a victory that certainly changed their political situation. It altered the course of events for years and years to come. They won a great victory. The Lord delivered them. And Samuel celebrated that victory. Now remember, there was that memorial stone in Joshua's field at the end of chapter 6. Well, here we have another memorial stone set up by Samuel. And he gives this stone a name. He calls that stone Ebenezer, meaning till now the Lord has helped us, or thus far the Lord has helped us. That's the meaning of this stone. It's a memorial to the way God helped his people and will continue helping them. It's not just he helped us and now that's it. It's that he will continue to help us. God gave them a great victory, a great triumph, and the stone commemorates that in the hymn, Come Thou Fount. Of every blessing. There's that line. Here I raise my Ebenezer. I raise my stone of help. God is my stone of help. He is my rock of help. You know, we got that old saying, God helps those who help themselves. That's not really found in the scripture. What we find here is that God helps the helpless. God helps those who call upon him. God helps those who cry out in utter dependence and neediness. God helps those who are helpless and who know it and who cry out to him in humility. That's what Israel did here. That's why they won the victory. And that's what the stone celebrates. Under Samuel's leadership, they finally got it right. One of the most troubling things about this, of course, is that uh, it didn't have to take this long. They could have had this victory 20 years, even 40 years earlier Had they repented, had they prayed, had they worshipped faithfully. Think about that. A whole generation was lost because of idolatry. Just like the Israelites in the wilderness. A whole generation was lost. Here, a whole generation, 40 years, lost. Because they would not repent, they would not pray, they would not worship. Repentance, prayer, worship. Those three things lead to their deliverance. And if you think about it, those three things are really the ABCs of the Christian life. It's what the Christian life really is all about. Repenting, praying, worshiping them. It's not like we ever outgrow these things. If we do these things, if we repent, pray, and worship, God will give us the victory. God will deliver us. God will give us his blessing. Some of you in this room here today have besetting sins that keep dragging you down. You've got an anger problem or a lust problem, perhaps, and you really need to repent. 
of that. You really need to break free of that idol. You've got a Baal or an Ashtaroth idol in your life that you need to smash. So long as you continue to walk in that sin, it's kind of like you're trying to carry a 500-pound pack on your back, and you just can't run the Christian race very well carrying that kind of weight, carrying around this unrepentant sin. You need to smash that idol. You need to turn to the Lord and serve him with all your heart. You need to repent. I'm sure in one way or another that applies to all of us. We've all got besetting sins we need to fight against and turn away from so we can serve the Lord more wholeheartedly. What about prayer? Some of you struggle with prayerlessness. I know it can be a real struggle to pray. You struggle with prayerlessness and you need to kick it up a notch. And I think you'll do that if we really come to see your weakness and your vulnerability before the enemies, before the adversaries of the Lord, you will see that you really do need to cry out and cry out continually. You've got to make prayer, crying out to the Lord, a regular habit, a central feature of your life, just a routine, a way of life for you. Prayer, it's got to be there. And some of you, quite frankly, don't value worship as you should, you need to prioritize worship in your life, especially Lord's Day covenant renewal. It's really interesting. One thing we find in Scripture is that Satan always attacks in the sanctuary. Going back to Genesis 3, the first sanctuary in the Garden of Eden, Satan always attacks in the sanctuary. And Satan will do anything he can to keep you from gathering with God's people for worship. And if you do gather, Satan will do everything he can to dilute the service so nothing of great importance happens there. He'll do anything he can to distract you from it. Have you ever wondered why you have such a hard time paying attention in church when you can pay attention anywhere else? It's because Satan's out to get you here in a way he's not in other places. He wants you distracted. He doesn't want you focused on hearing the word of God. And thinking about the, the lyrics to the hymns you're singing. Samuel here offers an ascension offering. That's what it's called. That's not how it's translated in most Bibles. But that's what it is. It's an ascension offering. The main meaning of the ascension offering, if you go back to Leviticus and look at it, the main meaning is consecration to God's service. And that happens through the word as we come into his heavenly presence to hear him speaking. This sermon right now is the ascension sacrifice. It is the ascension offering in our liturgy. We're doing the ascension offering right now. The word, as it is publicly read and preached, becomes the living and active two-edged sword of God. The word, as it's read and preached, transforms us into living sacrifices. The sword of the word cuts you up. The fire of the spirit transforms you. There's so many Christians today who simply do not value public worship. They think they can live their Christian life without it, without the church. They don't value public preaching. They don't value the power of the preached word. But I can tell you, a church that does not thunder the word, a church where the word of God is not cherished and prized, is going to be a weak church and a defeated church. So many of our problems today in the church stem from biblical illiteracy. We just don't know the word of God. You can't live out truth you don't know. You can't understand the times and what the Israel of God ought to do if you don't know his word. You can't apply a word you don't know. 
So these are really the ABCs of the Christian life. Repentance, prayer, worship. You build your Christian life out of these building blocks. That's how it works. These are the foundational practices, the foundational elements of the Christian life. Verse 13 tells us that the Philistines were subdued at this point. And if you put the chronology together, I'm just going to give you this as a little detour, a little side trail here real quickly. If you put the chronology together... You find that Samuel here in the book of Samuel and Samson in the book of Judges are actually judging Israel at the same time. They were both born to barren women at about the same time. They've got very similar names. They're both lifetime Nazarites, and they're both key figures in defeating the Philistines. If you go look at Judges chapter 16, Samson is captured. Samson is taken into captivity. And he is put in the temple of Dagon, just like the Ark of the Covenant had been captured and taken into captivity and put in the temple of Dagon. In fact, there's a lot of interesting parallels between Samson in Judges 16 and the Ark of the Covenant being captured in in, in 1 Samuel. A lot of interesting connections there. But think about what happened when the Ark was captured. The Ark toppled Dagon's statue. What does Samson do when he's captured and put in Dagon's temple? Samson pushes over the pillars of the temple, destroying Dagon's house and many of the Philistines that day. Samson gave his life sacrificially to defeat the enemy of God's people. In fact, what happens with Samson in Judges chapter 16 probably happens shortly before the battle of Mizpah here in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Samson repented and the nation of Israel repented right about the same time. And Samson defeats the, the, the Philistines at the temple of Dagon just before Samson defeats the Philistines in the battle of Mizpah. Judges 16 and 1 Samuel 7 go together. Samson and Samuel are like a one-two punch that deliver a knockout blow to the Philistines. The end of chapter 7 in 1 Samuel describes the great blessings brought about by Samuel's judgeship, by his ministry to Israel. Samson here, Samuel here really is, he's Israel's judge, he's Israel's priest, he's really the key man in the nation at this point. And now that the nation has aligned itself under Samuel in this way, they receive all kinds of blessings. Their cities are restored, their lost territories are regained, they've got peace with the Amorites, even as the Philistines are held at bay. We're told in verse 16, that uh, Samuel became a circuit-riding judge, so he would travel to Bethel and Mizpah and Gilgal and then Ramah, his hometown, ruling the nation in wisdom, restoring justice to the courts of the land. But while Samuel played this role as an officer of the state, you might say, as a judge, as a civil magistrate, wisely resolving disputes, applying the law of God to social situations, his role as an officer in the church is what's really highlighted here. We're told he built an altar, obviously, to lead the people in worship at the high place at Ramah. That's really the most important thing he did, and that's that's how this ends, is telling us that he built this altar. It is the most foundational and central thing he did. And this is why, think of Samuel as a judge and as a priest, playing those two roles. You cannot get social righteousness without faithful worship. You cannot have faithful judging in the land without worshiping God at his altar. That is the connection here. See, the pulpit, the table, 
the psalm book, are absolutely crucial to the Christian reconstruction of any society. They simply are. Everything flows out of the pulpit, the table, and the psalter. That's central. You cannot have a faithful state unless you have faithful worship at the heart of society. And see, I really think the whole point of this story is to show us that. The whole point of this story, I think, is to show us that the most important battles are not political or military or cultural. The most important battles are spiritual and liturgical. The first time the Israelites went out, when they went out in chapter 4 to fight the Philistines, they lost. Why did they lose? Well, we know it's because their priests and their worship were corrupt. Their priests were idolaters. Their worship at at the tabernacle in Shiloh was corrupt. This time, in this chapter, they go out to face the Philistines and they get victory. Why? Because they have a faithful priest and they are offering faithful worship. That is the key to everything. That is the lesson of the battles of Aphek and Mizpah, that the key battle is fought in the sanctuary. Israel cannot defeat the Philistines until and unless Israel worships God faithfully. That is to say, liturgical faithfulness precedes cultural conquest. Liturgical holiness is the key to a prosperous, godly society. And I would say that American Christians need to hear this loud and clear because if you look at our churches and you look at our priorities and you look at the way we do things, it's very obvious we don't get this. We don't get, quite honestly, for many American churches, worship is a joke. There's no sense of reverence before God, no sense of coming into the presence of a holy God to receive his gifts graciously given to us through Christ his son. What a lot of Christians have is an obsession with the culture war. And I get that because the culture war is a big deal. But if you just fight the culture war, you will lose the culture war. But here's the reality. If you will fight the spiritual war, the liturgical war, Faithfully, not only will you win that, but you'll get victory in the culture war thrown in too. Just like Israel. When they defeated the idols in their own lives in order to worship God faithfully, then they got victory over the Philistines. Okay, we want to see Christians get victory in our land, put away your idols, worship God faithfully, and then you'll win the culture war. We see this pattern, we see this play out. Again, over and over in the Bible, liturgy precedes dominion. Liturgy is the key that unlocks dominion. Liturgical faithfulness leads to cultural transformation. That is the blueprint for social righteousness. It starts here in the sanctuary. The Israelites worshiped God, and then they got peace. The Israelites worshiped God, and then they got victory. The Israelites worshiped God faithfully, and then they got their lost cities back. The Israelites worshiped God faithfully, then they got their lost territories back. How many Christians out there do you know? Conservative Christians. Real concerned about politics. They obsess over culture war issues, but they hardly even go to church. How many Christians do you know who are obsessed with beating the liberals, beating the progressives, but they've never sung a psalm in their entire life? And they have no patience for for the preaching of the word of God. They can hardly give it any attention. 
the American church is running out of time to figure this out. The Philistines have controlled our cities and our culture for quite some time now. And we've tried to fight back in all the usual ways. We've tried to win elections by getting the right candidate out there. And we've tried to get better justices out there. And we've tried to produce better art and cleaner entertainment than what the world produces. And all those can be good things in the proper place. But is it possible that the American church has not yet learned the lesson of 1 Samuel 7? Maybe... Just maybe we need to try something else. Maybe, just maybe, we need a different battle plan. Maybe we need to be like Samuel and build an an altar and offer liturgical sacrifice and pray and preach. Maybe that should be the foundation and center of it all. Maybe that should be the core of our strategy. I don't know what you think. I think it's worth a shot. It worked for Israel 3,000 years ago. I'm confident it will work for the church in America today. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.